Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 80, Great and Important Things. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy you're here. So today we are going to take a break from Come Follow Me and discuss a topic that I have seen blowing up on social media. And maybe some of you have seen it, probably a lot of you haven't, but I wanted to preemptively talk about it before general conference in case some of these rumors are true. So the topic that is blowing up is Heavenly Mother. There is a rumor going around that there is going to be, or there is or has been leadership training going on, slash perhaps a general conference talk coming up that is going to address the subject of Heavenly Mother. There are concerns about how people are including her in their worship, including praying specifically to her, including her as a part of the Godhead and crediting her for creation. And I could keep going. There's more. Now, I realize that there are probably a few people here. Maybe it's you listening to me today that will have problems with what I'm about to say. And that's okay. So my goal isn't to necessarily address what is and is not doctrine concerning Heavenly Mother. There is so much to say on that topic, and I will not get into that today. There are so many amazing quotes about that unique doctrine that we have of Heavenly Mother. So if you're feeling in the mood and you want to study her after this, you should go on the church website and read what has been said about Heavenly Mother. So maybe I'll get to do an episode about that at some point. That being said, I am excited to hear what leadership has to say about Heavenly Mother if that rumor is true, and they are going to speak about this in general conference. There are, however, many who are not excited. The push on social media from accounts that focus on Heavenly Mother is to, quote, prepare people for the so-called assault on Heavenly Mother and our freedom to worship her. My focus today will be to help, even if it's just one of you out there that might be confused or feel hurt by a talk surrounding this subject or be confused or hurt by people talking about it afterward and making you you doubt what you think or whatever. I just want to make sure that the other side, the other way of thinking about this is out there. And the way I'm going to talk about it today really can, it doesn't have to be Heavenly Mother that you are struggling with. It can be any topic that you struggle with a stance that the church has taken. It truly can apply to any stance that is that the church has taken that has rubbed you the wrong way. So let's dive in. First, I want to talk about truth. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Restored Church, a church in which we believe we receive literal modern revelation from the Lord, it makes sense that we embrace the doctrine of an omniscient God, a God that has a more grand, perfectly accurate perspective than we do. It's always been interesting to me to notice throughout the history of the world how caught up societies get, how self-righteous societies get on their own versions of morality. And our particular version of morality in the world right now seems to be the ever-indulgent worldly doctrine of moral relativity. Moral relativity is the defiance of the existence of a God who defines truth, defines right and wrong, a God who is our moral lawgiver. What is moral relativity? Wikipedia defines several different subsets of moral relativity, and some of the subsets don't entirely agree with the others, but this will give you a general idea of the overarching theme of moral relativity. 
It says, moral relativism or ethical relativism is a term used to describe several philosophical positions concerning the differences in moral judgments across different peoples and their own particular cultures. An advocate of such ideas is often labeled simply as a relativist for short. In detail, descriptive moral relativism holds that People do, in fact, disagree fundamentally about what is moral, with no judgment being expressed on the desirability of this. Meta-ethical moral relativism holds that in such disagreements, nobody is objectively right or wrong. Normative moral relativism holds that because nobody is right or wrong, everyone ought to tolerate the behavior of others, even when considerably large disagreements about the morality of a particular thing exists. So if I were to put our society in a particular category, I would say we have gone all the way from the beginning of that of that way of thinking all the way to that end where where we believe that we should tolerate all behavior and there should be no judgment placed upon that behavior. So I'm sure that you can see the problems with this way of thinking, and it's a tricky one to balance because we do live in a free country where people can make their own decisions, but even though people can make their own decisions without regard to whether I think it's right or wrong, the most common moral relativism I see in the world around me requires that not only do I have to be okay with them doing things I disagree with, which I do think that is okay. I should be, people should be allowed to do things that I disagree with, but it requires that I not place any judgment on that behavior, that I not label it even in my own head as right or wrong. Another phrase that you might recognize is everyone has their own truth. And while we all do have our own experiences, our own perspective through which we see the world, which certainly affects how we interpret the world around us, there is actually only one truth. If everyone has their own truth, then truth literally doesn't exist. And that's when we get into the whole discussion that Alma gives us in Alma 42, that everything must have its opposite. And he follows that line of thinking all the way to, if there isn't truth, if there isn't good or evil, then there is no God. So. We believe that there is truth, there is a moral lawgiver, there is right and wrong. And because of that, mercifully, there is an entire member of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost, who is dedicated, who has a purpose of testifying of truth. President Joseph Fielding Smith taught, through the Holy Ghost, the truth is woven into every fiber and the sinews of the body so that it cannot be forgotten. Moroni 10.5 says, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. The power of the Holy Ghost is a gift given to us in our confirmation right after we are baptized. We are quite literally given what is called the gift of the Holy Ghost. And part of that gift is to confirm truth to us, to help us discern between truth and lies. Gospel Topics says that the gift of the Holy Ghost is the privilege given to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, been baptized, and been confirmed as members of the church to receive continual guidance and inspiration from the Holy Ghost. And may I add, that guidance includes access to confirmation of truth. So back to moral relativism, where truth doesn't actually exist. Right or wrong only exists in relation to what each individual person thinks is right or wrong. Doesn't that remind you of 2 Nephi chapter 28, verses 7-8? through 8? Yea, and there shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and it shall be well with us. And there also shall be many which shall say, Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God, and he will justify in committing a little sin. Yea, lie a little. Take the advantage of one because of his words. Dig a pit for thy neighbor. There is no harm in this. And do all these things, for tomorrow we die. 
And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. So how does this, moral relativism, truth, all of this, relate to the topic of accepting counsel from prophets and apostles when they seem to go against what our inadequate and perspectiveless reasoning determines is right or wrong, or go against things that we have accepted as truth? Is it possible that some of the moral relativity that has overtaken so much of the world's thinking is leaking into the church? And actually, I'm, I'm going to rephrase that. It is probable that some of the moral relativity that has overtaken much of the world thinking is leaking into the church. Yes, without a doubt, absolutely. So what would that look like? Obviously, the people who are still within the church and might be struggling with this are still embracing a lot of true doctrine. But my perception of what it looks like is choosing to ignore or defy or mock apostles and prophets and their direction and revelation of doctrine because they think that they know better or that their version of morality is more true. And let me be clear that I'm not talking about policies within the church. I think that there's good room for pushback in policy, but it's choosing to put your own wisdom ahead of what is revealed wisdom from God. There seems to be a movement within the church that we believe we deserve or are entitled to greater knowledge than we have been given. And in some days, we are eventually. In fact, we've been promised that as we keep our covenants, the commandments, and do our part, eventually, on the Lord's timeline, we will get to know the truth of all things. All doctrine, explanation of all things in history, everything that felt incomplete or rubbed you the wrong way or didn't make sense to you will be revealed as we act in faith and we do what he has asked us to do. One of the things we are asked to do is seek after personal revelation. In fact, proponents of this moral relativism way of thinking within the church often say that the church began with a young boy asking questions and receiving revelation, Joseph Smith. And while that's true, as it is also true that we can receive personal revelation, our personal revelation is limited to revelation for our own lives and even expanded understanding about the gospel as we study about revealed doctrine. This does not mean that we are authorized to expand on current doctrine to the point where we're creating new doctrine. Personal revelation means just that, increased understanding of revealed doctrine. I don't think that this means that we won't have theories or ideas in our own heads about what knowledge lies beyond revealed doctrine. I certainly have my own ideas and theories about all kinds of different things that are not doctrine. And I think that's great as long as I don't get so attached, so into my own ideas that I think I understand more than the prophet, know better than the Lord, or make my ideas, my, my theories central to my worship. I've shared some of my own personal thoughts about certain topics on this podcast, and every time I do, I'm always hesitant to do so, so I make it ultra clear that this is just my brain kind of running wild a little bit, so I think we need to be really careful about that. But I do think it's important for us to really think and stretch our minds to the possibilities, but we cannot be presenting it as doctrine nor become so attached to it in our own minds that we consider it doctrine. We are not the authorized authorities to do so. And that brings me to my second topic, priesthood keys. The Lord's church is a house of order. Can you imagine what chaos would ensue if it were appropriate for us all to receive doctrine and revelation for the church, regardless of authority? Article of faith number five says, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer the ordinances thereof. So why is authority important? 
Joseph F. Smith said, God's work is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men. God and Jesus Christ have given men authority and power to do their work on earth. The priesthood is nothing more nor less than the power of God delegated to man by which man can act in earth for the salvation of the human family in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and act legitimately. When did Joseph Smith begin to speak authoritatively as the prophet, the head of the Lord's church here on the earth? Was it the moment that he stepped out of the sacred grove? Was it right after Moroni visited him in his room? Was it after he dug up the plates? No, the Book of Mormon wasn't printed. Members, including Joseph, were not baptized, nor was the church organized until after Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery received the Aaronic Priesthood conferred by John the Baptist, then the Melchizedek Priesthood confirmed by Peter, James, and John. Doctrine and Covenants, section 27, verses 12 through 13. And also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you, and confirmed you to be apostles and especial witnesses of my name, and bear the keys of your ministry, and the same things which I revealed unto them, unto whom I have committed the keys of my kingdom, and a dispensation of the gospel for the last times, and for the fullness of times, in the which I will gather together in one all things, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. When Joseph Smith received the priesthood, he received the keys of his ministry, keys of the kingdom, and the keys of the dispensation of the gospel for the fullness of times. Gospel Topics defines a prophet as one designated by God to be his spokesperson and to be a teacher, revelator, and witness of gospel truths. Belief in prophets and apostles at the head of the church does not mean that members blindly follow their leaders. While the prophet of God receives revelation and inspiration to guide the church as a whole, revelation flows at every level, including the leaders of congregations and to individual families and members. In fact, individual members are expected to seek that kind of divine guidance to help them in their own lives and their responsibilities in the church and even in temporal pursuits, including their occupations. Members are also expected to prayerfully seek their own testimony or conviction of the principles their leaders teach them. Additionally, Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. There are all kinds of examples throughout the Doctrine and Covenants of people who were really feeling what they thought was the revelation of doctrine through the Spirit. But come to find out, it was actually the devil imitating revelation and spiritual experiences and taking advantage of their background in, in the, the Great Revival. One of those instances was Hiram Page, one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. The Come Follow Me Manual for Doctrine and Covenants, section 27 through 28, says, In August of 1830, Hiram Page claims to have received two revelations about the future location and organization of Zion using black seer stones. These revelations contradicted previous revelations given to Joseph Smith, but many members believed them. When Joseph prayed about Hiram's revelation, the Lord taught, no one shall be appointed to receive commandments and revelations in this church excepting my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr. He declared that those things which Hiram had written from that stone are not from me, and Satan deceiveth him. Hiram eventually discarded his revelations, and all members unanimously confirmed that the prophet was the only revelator for, the, for Christ's church. Why is it important to know that only the living prophet can receive revelation for the whole church? How does this protect us from deception? All right, so while we do believe in personal revelation, that is what it is, a personal revelation for us and for our family. It is not a revelation of new doctrine for the church as a whole. That is why we have a prophet. This is the structure that the Lord has set out. We are not authorized to receive or create new doctrine based on what feels good to us. 
President M. Russell Ballard said, Keep your eyes riveted on the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. We will not lead you astray. We cannot. If someone tells you that they have received revelation that the First Presidency and the Twelve have not received, run away from them. I love how clear that is. Run away from them. And I don't think that he means that that you distance yourself from your fam- family members and, and ostracize them. But I think it means spiritually distance yourself from them. Do not attach on to whatever revelations, whatever doctrine, whatever ideas that they claim are coming from God. All right. I want to talk about next the pride cycle. So much of the conversation that I have witnessed online this last week has been outrage that there is even a possibility that there will be guidance brought out that would contradict the way some have grown accustomed to worshiping and thinking about Heavenly Mother, ways of thinking that have become doctrine to them, ways of thinking that have not been revealed through living apostles and prophets. I'm not saying that I think everything these people talk about is wrong. I like a lot of it. There is a lot of discussion about things that have been clarified by general authorities. There has been a lot of discussion with truth sprinkled into it, which, side note, is one of Satan's sneakiest ways to deceive us. And I think even some of it has pretty much all truth in it. But it's the focus that I think is out of whack that is, I mean, there's also definitely false doctrine in some of these forums. But Some of it isn't false, but the focus is off. We are not told to pray to Heavenly Mother. We are not told to make her the central part of our worship right now. So much of it is going past what has been revealed, is holding Heavenly Mother up as a central deity, which again, may eventually be where we land as we get more and more knowledge from the Lord. But as of right now, that is not our instruction. I know that there is so much to learn about our Heavenly Mother. And through that learning, and experience, women will learn so much more about themselves. And that's so beautiful. I think that we can still talk to our heavenly mother without praying to her, just as I can talk to Jesus without directly praying to him. I still pray to my heavenly father. Many might ask, but what about heavenly mother? Why is she overlooked? Why aren't we worshiping her as an equal with heavenly father? And I think many feel a need to connect with a female deity to fully know their divine feminine within the divine feminine that they were patterned after. These are all valid longings and questions. Article of Faith number nine. We believe that God has revealed all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I don't know what all the answers are about Heavenly Mother, but I do know that the answers and direction we have now are great and important. We are given the current light and knowledge appropriate for our development level as a church. I believe that the revelations and direction we are currently getting from our leaders are great and important. And us following their direction is vital for our spiritual survival. But here's the best part that applies to this topic. We believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Don't you think that the further knowledge about Heavenly Mother is one of those many great and important things that we have yet to learn about. When we wonder in our pride here, what about Heavenly Mother? Why is she left out? What does that mean about me? That it must mean that the church is devaluing women? We are told here very explicitly that there are many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God that we have yet to learn about. 
we are not just missing a few minute details. We are missing great and important things that have not been revealed to us. Things that we are not ready for yet. We need to value and be faithful to the things that we already have before Heavenly Father will determine that we are ready for more. I am 100% sure that one of those great and important things is more knowledge about our Heavenly Mother. We cannot afford to be so prideful that we think we are entitled to every great important thing right now. Do I understand why she is not intended to be one of the main focuses here on earth right now? No, I absolutely don't. She sounds pretty amazing to me, but I do know that we have been instructed to pray to Heavenly Father that we have been commanded to worship the Lord our God. Some may ask, how do we know that Jesus didn't pray to Heavenly Mother? And the answer is, is that we don't. Maybe he did. But that is not our instruction. Right here, here on earth, we are told to worship our Father in heaven, Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost. Does that feel incomplete to you? Do you feel like it's missing her? Maybe that's because we are naturally yearning for what is in store for those great and important things. But that doesn't mean that righteous yearning entitles us to take what we know of her and stretch it beyond what our wise Father in Heaven has determined we need right now. Doctrine and Covenants chapter 93 verses 23 through 28. And truth is knowledge of things as they are and as they were and as they are to come. And whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. The spirit of truth is of God. I am the spirit of truth. And John bore record of me saying, he received a fullness of truth, yea, even of all truth. And no man receiveth a fullness of truth unless he keepeth his commandments. And he that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. So some important things here. Number one, truth is a knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. People have done wonderful research about what we do know about Heavenly Mother. However, we cannot afford to be so prideful in thinking that our own personal expansion on the subject is going to be exactly what Heavenly Father would teach us, that it is going to be true, pure doctrine. And that is because we are not authorized to reveal doctrine. We are preaching false doctrine when we attempt to extrapolate truth by expanding on doctrine that we weren't authorized to expand. Secondly, whatsoever is more or less than this is the spirit of that wicked one who was a liar from the beginning. We cannot be naive. We need to be looking for ways that Satan is trying to, as Nephi would say, lead us carefully to hell. Since the beginning of time, one of his best strategies has been to twist the truth, add in the philosophies of the world, and watch us destroy ourselves. And any doctrine not revealed through the prophet is not doctrine. Elder Ballard said, If someone tells you they have received revelation that the first presidency and the twelve have not received, run away from them. Number three. And no man receiveth a fullness unless he keepeth his commandments. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. Part of keeping the commandments is allowing God to prevail in our hearts and minds. If you believe that the church is true, that the Book of Mormon is true, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored to the earth, that this is Christ's church, let God prevail. Never let your own ideas about all of the things that we don't know yet become so big that there's not room left for the humble admission that God knows better than you do and that God is working through the leadership of the church. 
Another primary argument I've seen this last week is that we believe in the article of faith number 11, which says we claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, and what they may. People using this as a justification for creating their own doctrine based on what they perceive as their own personal revelation is twisting it, is twisting that doctrine in their own mind. When the church comes out clarifying a doctrine or clarifying what we do and do not know yet, it never means that you don't still have your agency. You are allowed to worship to the dictates of your own conscience, worship how, where, or what you may. What it does not mean is that the church itself will enter into this chaotic place where members are able to determine doctrine for the church as a whole. You are welcome to believe whatever you want. And yes, you might be excommunicated for that if it goes too far, if you're trying to influence too many people within the church. But ultimately, you are welcome to believe and worship how you would like. I've had a few conversations with my mom this week, Tani Kemp, and she sent this text, and I think she is right on point. She says, it just seems to me, like with almost any issue, that no matter how good people have it, it's never enough, that the focus is off. In the Savior's ministry, he asks his apostles, what seek ye? He also asks the same question when Mary comes to grieve in the garden. So we can fairly ask ourselves, what seek we? If the answer is Christ, other issues tend not to shove their way to the forefront and blindside us. Oh, I love my mom. Listen to that again. If the answer is Christ, if what we seek is Christ, other issues tend not to shove their way to the forefront and blindside us. I certainly understand that it can be hard being a woman in the church. Historically, we can feel shoved to the side, forgotten stories not told. And in church leadership, we can focus on the fact that the primary leadership roles are men because that is the order set up by the Lord. Personally, I don't feel that way. I feel that sometimes culturally, there have been times when men have used unrighteous dominion and trampled over the voices of women. For sure, that's happened. Perhaps here on the earth, the men get to practice humility as they're in positions of power and leadership. Perhaps as women, we get to practice humility in accepting the roles and responsibilities we have been given, which are not small. I know that this is a topic that may get some eye rolls, but those eye rolls are not warranted. Motherhood, of all the positions of power women have in the church, motherhood is the most important one. It is the most influential position in the history of the world. Satan wants us to diminish that. Satan wants us to make fun of that. Satan wants us to think that it is trite and inconsequential. Satan wants us to get caught up in our lack of official leadership positions, priesthood, and roles. He doesn't want us to realize the power that we have here on earth in our role as mothers. Not only that, but women have incredible influence on all of those men in leadership positions in the church. Think of every couple you know in the church that is in a leadership position. Do you think that the women in those relationships have power and influence on those men? I have no doubt. I could go on and on. I think that sometimes culture and pride and unrighteous dominion have caused problems just as they would have caused problems in every organization that has involved fallible human beings in the, in the history of the world. And that part of it is improving, but never ever buy into the rhetoric that the role that our father in heaven has given you has told you is important, has told you is infinitely valuable is not enough. And there is so much more to come. 
God has yet to reveal many great and important things, not tiny, insignificant things, great and important things. Be patient with that. Wait on the Lord. His timeline is not your timeline. If there is anything we can learn from the Old Testament this year, it is that faithful people throughout the history of the world have waited patiently on the Lord. Let's revisit my favorite scripture lately that I've discovered over the last month or so. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, and this is Paul speaking of the prophets. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We have promises that we can see afar off, and I hope that we are persuaded of them and embrace them. We don't have everything right now. I think to yearn for revelation that we don't have yet is a righteous desire. The Lord wants to reveal more to us, but part of being worthy of that revelation is patiently waiting on his timetable. If he says we aren't ready yet, if he implies that we aren't ready by not giving it to us yet, we need to be able to trust that he knows better than we do. Through that exercise of faith, we can gain courage, determination, and fortitude to stay. I'm going to continue with what my mom said. When Mary went early to the tomb, she was expecting to find the stone still in place. And when it was not, she ran to tell the news to Peter and John. They both came, saw the empty tomb, and went back home. It doesn't say why Mary stayed, but we do know that she was experiencing deep grief because she stood outside the sepulcher weeping. Shortly after, she saw the resurrected Lord. She was the first to see him because she stayed. She stayed even though she didn't understand what was happening or what was going to happen or how all of the pieces of what she had been taught by the Savior fit. The tomb was empty and yet she stayed. I think that there are some times in everybody's life when we offer everything we have and still feel that the tomb is empty. But Mary's experience is a testimony that the Savior will always come, and that when He does, He will call us by name, like He did her, because He knows us. He knows who we are, our questions will be answered, our souls will be soothed, and everything will be more than generously fair, more than we can comprehend. I believe that with everything I am. Maybe sometimes, in our unsettled moments, the problem is that we have mistaken Him for the gardener. We might not be able to look him in the eye and talk to him or touch him in a tangible way, but it doesn't cancel the reality that he's there and that he cares. It boils down to what we are seeking. Do you trust God and the Savior, or do you trust your own judgment? And I'm always humbled by the question, Art thou greater than he? I believe that in those times when we sit outside the empty tomb and weep in despair because we don't understand, that our questions will be answered and everything will eventually become clear because we stayed. Why should we stay? Why are you here? Ultimately, I hope that you are here because you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. Therefore, Joseph Smith was a prophet. And finally, because of all that, this is the true and living church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude with Elder Holland's profound answer to that question in hopes that his testimony can strengthen your testimony today, can strengthen your resolve to wait, to stay for those great and important things yet to come. He says, May I refer to a modern last day's testimony, 
When Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram started for Carthage to face what they knew would be an eminent martyrdom, Hiram read these words to comfort the heart of his brother. Thou hast been faithful, wherefore thou shalt be made strong, even unto the sitting down in the place which I have prepared in the mansions of my father. And now I, Moroni, bid farewell, until we shall meet before the judgment seat of Christ. A few short verses from the twelfth chapter of Ether in the Book of Mormon. Before closing the book, Hiram turned down the corner of the page from which he had read, marking it as part of the everlasting testimony for which these two brothers were about to die. I hold in my hand that book, the very copy from which Hiram read, the same corner of the page turned down still visible. Later, when actually incarcerated in the jail, Joseph the prophet turned to the guards who held him captive and bore a powerful testimony of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Shortly thereafter, Pistol and Ball would take the lives of these two testators. As one of a thousand elements of my own testimony of the divinity of the Book of Mormon, I submit this as yet one more evidence of its truthfulness. In this, their greatest and last hour of need, I ask you, would these men blaspheme before God by continuing to fix their lives, their honor, and their own search for eternal salvation on a book, and by implication a church and a ministry they had fictitiously created out of whole cloth? Never mind that their wives were about to be widows and their children fatherless. Never mind that their little band of followers would yet be houseless, friendless, and homeless. That their children will leave footprints of blood across frozen rivers and untamed prairie floor. Never mind that lesions will die and other lesions live declaring to the four corners of the earth that they know that the Book of Mormon and the church which espouses it to be true. Disregard all of that. And tell me whether in this hour of death these two men would enter into the presence of their eternal judge, quoting from and finding solace in a book which, if not the very word of God, would brand them as impostors and charlatans until the end of time. They would not do that. They were willing to die rather than to deny the divine origin and eternal truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. For 179 years, this book has been examined and attacked, denied and deconstructed, targeted and torn apart, perhaps like no other book in modern religious history, perhaps like no other book in religious history. And still it stands. Failed theories about its origins have been born and parroted and have died, from Ethan Smith to Solomon Spaulding to deranged, paranoid, and cunning genius. None of these frankly pathetic answers for this book has ever withstood examination because there is no other answer than the one that Joseph gave as its young, unlearned translator. In this I stand with my own great-grandfather, who said simply enough, No wicked man could write such a book as this, and no good man would write it unless it were true and if he were commanded of God to do so. I testify that one cannot come to full faith in this latter-day work and thereby find the fullest measure of peace and comfort in these our times until he or she embraces the divinity of the Book of Mormon and the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it testifies. If anyone is foolish enough or misled enough to reject 531 pages of a heretofore unknown text teeming with literary and semantic complexity without honestly attempting to account for the origin of those pages, especially without accounting for the powerful witness of Jesus Christ and the profound spiritual impact that witness has had on what is now tens of millions of readers. If that is the case, then such a person, elect or otherwise, has been deceived. And if he or she leaves this church, it must be done by crawling over or under or around the Book of Mormon to make that exit. In that sense, 
The book is what Christ himself said is to be a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, a barrier in the path of one who wishes not to believe in this work. Witnesses, even witnesses who were for a time hostile to Joseph, testified to their death that they had seen an angel and had handled the plates, that they had been shown unto us by the power of God and not of men, they declared, wherefore we know of a surety that the work is true. Now I did not sail with the brother of Jared in crossing the ocean, settle in a new world. I did not hear King Benjamin speak his angelically delivered sermon. I did not proselyte with Alma and Amulek, nor witness the fiery death of innocent believers. I was not among the Nephite crowd who touched the wounds of the resurrected Lord, nor did I weep with Mormon and Moroni over the destruction of an entire civilization. But my testimony of this record and the peace it brings to the human heart is as binding and unequivocal as was theirs. Like them, I give my name unto the world to witness unto the world that which I have seen, and like them I lie not, God bearing witness of it. I ask that my testimony of the Book of Mormon and all that it implies, given today under my own oath and office, be recorded by men on earth and angels in heaven. I hope I have a few years left in my last days, but whether I do or do not, I want it absolutely clear when I stand before the judgment bar of God that I declared to the world in the most straightforward language I could summon, that the Book of Mormon is true, that it came forth the way Joseph said it came forth and was given to bring happiness and hope to the faithful in the travail of the latter days. My witness echoes that of Nephi, who wrote part of the book in his last days. Hearken unto these words and believe in Christ, and if ye believe not in these words, believe in Christ, and if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words, for they are the words of Christ, and they teach all men that they should do good. And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye, for Christ will show unto you with power and great glory that they are his words at the last day. Brothers and sisters, God always provides safety for the soul, and with the Book of Mormon, he has again done that in our time. Remember this declaration by Jesus himself, Whoso treasureth up my word shall not be deceived. And in the last days neither your heart nor your faith will fail you. Of this I earnestly testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I echo Elder Holland's testimony. I'm not as eloquent as he is, but I feel that same testimony burning deep in my heart. We need to be watchful and careful as the adversary ramps up his final efforts in these spiritually dangerous times. Satan's tactics are easy to spot if we humbly let God prevail in our hearts and minds. Stay, have faith, and wait patiently for the many great and important things yet to come. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.